Hi, you're listening to Eternal Stance. I hope this message inspires you to live in light of eternity. So we've been going through a series called Running with the Giants. We wanted to look at the people in the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, and we want to kind of see how they live their lives and maybe be inspired, but by no means to look at them and say, well, they did everything perfectly. As I've mentioned so many times before, the Bible is descriptive, it's not prescriptive. You know, there's some things in there that are prescriptive, but when we talk about people's lives, it just describes how things were. And if, you, if there's a principle that is prescriptive or you can apply it to your life, then apply it to your life. So the reason I'm saying that is because a lot of people look in the Bible and they're like, see, this guy had 20 wives. So, well, this just describes the situation. Doesn't mean that that is godly. Okay, um, so as we look at their life, you might see things that you disagree with. I think if you look at a lot of the heroes that we, we claim, the heroes of the faith, they were not perfect people by any means. These are people like you and me that were broken. And the only thing that made them great is they were in the hands of a great God. So, so I think a lot of People say things like, oh, you're just a great man of God. But I think the more correct version of that is that there are just men in the hand of a great God. Amen? And, and these are not people that are perfect by any means. And last week we talked about Esther. And today I want to talk about Gideon. It's someone that you probably have heard in Sunday school uh, a lot about. I, I know I grew up with, with hearing about Gideon. And a lot of times I made him, made him into a hero. But uh, we'll unpack that today. So if you have your Bibles, actually I'm going to ask you to open up really quick in 1 Corinthians 1.26. And if you have not brought your Bible, we're going to have it on the screen. And um, this is Apostle Paul writing to the church of the, uh, Corinth. And he says this in verse 26, um, chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. He says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, were powerful, were wealthy, when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring no, uh, to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, I, I thank you, God, for your presence in this place. I, I ask you this morning, God, that you would open up the heart of your listeners. And Father, I, I pray that you take this word and lodge it deep inside of every single one of our hearts, Lord God, and convict us in the moments we need to be convicted, Lord, and restore us in the, in the places we have to be restored and healing and transform us, Lord. Lord, I know that these people we're talking about, they're not, they were not great because of their abilities or their character, but Lord, they were great because you and them were great. It was great. And you are great. And Father, let us not ever lose sight of that. Lord, I pray that as, as we look through the story of Gideon, that we would see the work of Jesus in this story, that we would see the gospel, Lord God, in this story. Lord, we exalt you and we, th we thank you for everything you've done. May Jesus, we pray and everyone said, Amen. Amen. 
Well, you can open to Judges 6. This is a book. Uh, it's actually a, the sixth book in the Bible. You have, uh, it's actually the seventh. So you have the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and then there's the book of Joshua, and there's the book of Judges. Now, a lot of times when we think of a judge, we think of someone who is wearing a really long robe with a hammer, a wooden hammer, not a regular one, right? Like a wooden hammer, and they sort of like, you know, make sure that they try cases and so on and so forth. But this is not the kind of judge we're talking about here. The book of Judges, it describes a period of about 350 years, I, I believe, that that is uh, kind of like a broken period where the Israelites don't have a king. It's a, what we would call today a theocracy, right? Where God is their king. But God would bring up people as judges to deliver their people. So a judge would be more on the line of uh, a commander, a deliverer, uh, someone who was in charge without being really a king or being, you know, above kind of like the people. So we see in the book of Judges that after the first five, book, uh, five books, and then we have uh, the book of Joshua, Joshua kind of led the Israelites into this land, and there was a commandment from the Lord. And if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses kind of proclaims that if you are serving God, you will have blessings. But if you don't serve God, then you will suffer the curses. You will suffer bondage. You will suffer a lot of consequences if you don't follow after God. So when we get to the book of Judges, it's almost a book of despair. Because it's the same cycle of sort of, hey, they're, they're, they're good with God. And then I would call it the A, B, C, D, E of, of brokenness. First, they were good with God, but then uh, came apostasy. If you don't know what apostasy is, is when people doesn't, don't care about worshiping God anymore. They're apathetic towards God. So the first step was, you know, if, if you can remember that, the A, B, C, D, E, right? Like, it would be a cycle of apostasy where people forgetting who really delivered them, which is God, and then because of their apostasy, God would deliver them into bondage to some tribe or some kind of king. And after bondage, right, so you have your A, apostasy, and your B as in bondage, and then C would be they will cry out. Under the, the oppression of the people that came and overtook the land, under them being slaves, right, they will cry out to the Lord. And God would raise up a judge to deliver them, right? That's how, how we get our D, right? So there will there'll be a, a time of deliverance where, for example, we have uh, judges like Deborah. You know, there's a whole bunch of judges are guys and then there's this powerful woman. So all the women in the house, you know, like there's, there's some heroes in the Bible that were powerful, right? So you have Deborah, you have uh, Yehuda, and you have a lot of just uh, judges that came before Gideon. But it's kind of the same cycle, apostasy, bondage, they cry out to the Lord, God delivers them. Then there's a time of ease, right, where there's freedom. And then the cycle starts all over again. Because in freedom, we get to sort of choose, do we want to serve God or not? You know, it's interesting, growing up, I grew up in this country called Moldova, which is one of the poorest countries in in Europe, and I do remember when my dad would get fined for baptizing people. This was in 2001. This is not like that far ago, right? And the church 
thrives under persecution. I saw it with my own eyes where at home we had church in the side of the house, but we couldn't actually have speakers. We couldn't afford them either, but like we couldn't have speakers in the house and we had to sing really quietly because we didn't want to get fined, right? But I saw how even under this persecution, the church thrived. People get together and they'll start praying. The house would shake by, the, by their prayers and people like, just calm down, calm down. Like we, we, we have to be quiet. The church would thrive. But then there was a time of sort of ease. And then we started to see how people start to become apathetic towards God. We see it in our own generation. If you're an immigrant here, by the way, I, I love 4th of July because it just reminds me all the things that God has pulled me from. Uh, I think a lot of people that live here don't understand the blessings they have in this country. And again, I don't want to go into politics, but what I'm trying to say is living in that kind of world and third world country and coming here and seeing the freedom, it's an amazing thing. But it could also be destructive. Because it used to be where you had to be persecuted to leave your faith. And that actually intensified your faith. Now you live in freedom. And you have to work 24-7 to pay for the latest car. And you sort of are submitting yourself unto other kind of bondages. It's a different tactic. But it's not so new. We see it here. There's a time of ease. And people start to get kind of relaxed. Do I want to go to church today? Ah, oh, maybe go skiing. Or maybe I, I want to do this. And you sort of, and again, this is not, nothing wrong with skiing, but when you start to kind of change your allegiances, when you start to change what you do on Sunday morning, when you change what you used to worship the Lord, but now you worship a house, a car, a career, whatever, and you're like, I don't worship my car. Well, if you think, if you're in church, during worship, you're thinking about what you're going to get for your car. You are worshiping your car. If you're thinking about your career, you are worshiping your career if you're not worshiping the Lord. What is your default thinking that you go back to right away? If it's not the Lord, you're not godly-minded. Right? Where do you write your biggest checks? That's a good indication of what you worship. You're like, oh, it's my mortgage, but I need a roof over my head. Well, there is... There is a, like an area there where the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So you've got to take care of your family. But we have to distinguish between wants and needs and so on and so forth, right? I don't want to get too much into that, but what, I'm, what I want to say is, is in a time of ease, there's a, a tendency to relax and sort of say, and, and I think if we look in the U U.S. for the last, I would say, 30 years, I think when you have other groups and other political sort of agendas they were so kind of like combatively forced onto us but we sort of kind of took a back step we've played defensive we weren't going on the offensive well i just want to go to my job and i don't want to argue on facebook and i want to just leave every like i, I want to be a christian i want to be a ceo christmas and easter only christian right like where we don't want to be con confronting people right so we kind of sit back and with that comes apostasy. It comes apathy. I, I heard this, the same, a professor asked a kid, or asked the class rather, do you think the problem with your generation is apathy or ignorance? And he said, I don't know and I don't care. So it turns out he, was, he suffered with both, right? <laughs> and, and I think that's a good, good illustration, right? Like, 
Is it ignorance or apathy? Sometimes we suffer from both. But God has called us to be vigilant. God has called us to not sit back. God has called us to prepare in the good times for the worst of times. Amen? Because otherwise we keep on going the same cycle. Think about your life. Maybe you cannot relate to Gideon because you haven't led an army and so on and so forth. But your life, how many times have you been doing the same sin? And then you're in bondage and then you ask God to forgive you and, to, and you repented. And there was a time of deliverance and you were delivered. But then you kind of eased into just a lifestyle of not reading your Bible and, and going into your prayer closet and not pursuing the Lord. And as you've been doing that, you've stepped back and then apathy came first. And the next thing came bondage again. And then you're crying out again. And it's a never-ending cycle. And what I'm hoping to do this morning is to talk about breaking this cycle. Stop this. And the unfortunate thing about this book is that it ends so so dramatically and so kind of sad where it says and everyone at the, at the end of the book says after all this after all these cycles of god raising up a judge delivering there's time of freedom then there's apathy and then there's bondage again then there's crying out and and then at the end of the book it says that you know after all of this everyone just sort of decided to do what's right in their eyes it's such a sad picture and it's almost a book of despair and that's how we get to chapter number six you know, I, I grew up in Moldova again, like I mentioned, and I was, I was a farm boy, and uh, I, I had t 13 sheep, you know, and, uh, well, my dad had them. I hated them. Um, because one thing that I had to do is, in the springtime, I had to take the sheep into, like, pastures, and it was just the most boring thing ever. You just watch sheep, like, eat their grass. You talk to them, they don't talk back. Like, it's kind of those things, like, where... It was not a good experience overall, and I was pretty embarrassed by it, and my brother would take him one day, and I'd take him another day, and it just so happens my brother will always take him home through a different way, so if you could picture this, there was a lake uh, close to our house, and then there was a road that was higher up, right, and then there was like a valley in, on the other side, so I knew that across this road, there's a whole bunch of my friends that are playing soccer, so on one hand, I wanted to just kind of take the sheep and like cut across the dry lake now because it was like a, a dry lake and cut across because it was faster and because the road was, was a lot more, a lot more um, dangerous because there's cars, but mostly because I didn't want to be embarrassed to my friends, right? Like I didn't want my friends to see me doing this. So as, I, as I'm trying to, I don't know if you ever led sheep from behind, which not a good idea. Um, You've heard the expression herding cats? Well, the idea that like you cannot get a whole bunch of cats to do what you want them to do because they have a mind of their own, on their own, right? Like you cannot herd them. Like you cannot like move the cats, right? Well, sheep are no better at times. If they're set on one way, they're not going a different way. And my brother kept on taking them over the road, you know? And the whole time I'm trying to lead them, they're constantly climbing on the road. And I'm just doing this constantly. You know, and it's just not going anywhere. I'm just getting so frustrated. And I slide, and, and, and I'm just, like, getting so frustrated. And one of my friends throws the soccer ball and then comes to get it, and he looks at me doing this, and he's just like... And I was just so embarrassed. And I blame the sheep, but... Um, <laughs> and I was just so embarrassed. But I think I could never think of a better explanation to show what it's like 
when you have a whole bunch of sheep that have a mind on their own. They're so set on going with their habit. No matter how much you're trying to convince them that it's better this way because it's a shorter uh, commute <laughs> and it's less dangerous and I don't want to be embarrassed, right? Like, they, they, they don't understand that. And I think with people, when we are set in one habit, it's so hard to break that. It is so hard to go a different route, to learn a new habit, to learn a different way of doing things that is healthy. It's really, we are so stubborn at times to go back to our own ways of doing it, even if it's more dangerous, even if it's more embarrassing. At times, I think we kind of already enjoy the thrill. Weird. So how does God lead people like this, like us? How does God lead people in the Old Testament? Well, he raises up a judge, and he starts to kind of lead this judge, and that's how we end up in chapter 6. And it's interesting because it starts out saying that the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites, sorry, uh, Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, uh, Maridors from Midian, Amalek, and other people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land, destroying the crops as far as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, donkeys. The enemy uh, hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived as, uh, on droves of camels, too numerous to count. We actually know the count later on. It was about 135,000. So think of an army of 135,000 people attacking this land constantly, right? It says, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. It's the same cycle, right? Because we see in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And then we come to chapter 6 and it says, they did evil in God's eyes again, and God handed them over. Did you know that sometimes when God hands you over, is not meant for your destruction, it's meant for your repentance? God is trying to get their attention is what, what, what's trying to say here. God is saying, hey, you can't go on your own because if you go on your own, you're going to spend your time in bondage. And I don't know how you came in this morning, but a lot of times when we are flirting with sin, God comes and says, look, there's, there's consequences to this. And if you don't stop, you, you will lose your legacy, you'll lose your family to this bondage, and this will destroy you. So I'd rather give you into this for now until you learn your lesson so you can cry out to me so I can deliver you. So hopefully you get the lesson. But that does not, that's not what happens because we're creatures of habit and we're like the sheep that are led astray at times, right? Like by, by our own emotions. We're not being led by God. We're led by our own emotions and our own things. But I feel to do it this way. And this is what's happening here. And God is saying like, look, I'd rather have you in slavery for a while until you learn your lesson so I can save you after that instead of leaving you to your own devices. I love this, this song by, I think the band is called Need to Breathe. And it's, it, the song is called uh, Brother, Let Me Be Your Shelter. And there's a line in there and says, like a bull chasing a matador is a man left to his own schemes. Right, this, this idea that if you've ever seen a bull chasing a matador, imagine the bull being the man chasing his own schemes. Right, we are not very good at making sure that we're not deceived. We chase things and then we end up, how do we get here? And God is trying to get their attention and says, look, if you don't learn this lesson, 
you will you will be destroyed. And it says that they were given into slavery, and um, they would come. These these people would come in, and and um, I would actually correct that and say they were given more into a, a time of people come and just attack their land and take everything. So they were slave to this bondage of constantly working for nothing. Have you ever had that in your life? When you are planting constantly and you, you cannot see the results of your life or of your work because you've been paying tickets lately, because you've been paying for lawyers, for your DUIs, because you've been paying for some of the mistakes you've been doing before, that's what the enemy, uh, the enemy wants to do, right? He wants to, remember John 10, 10 says, I came to give you life. Jesus is saying that, but the enemy says, uh, this says the enemy came to, to kill, st- steal, kill, and destroy. That's his whole apparatus. Like he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he's after. So when we see the Israelites, they're hiding in caves, in caves, but they can't plant there. They have to come in the valley and plant. And when their crops are ready for harvesting, these people just swarm in and they constantly take over everything. When you just made your paycheck, it's like, yeah, that's going to go to all the tickets you've been acquiring lately. Uh, when you just made your paycheck and now you have to pay for legal fees, uh, your, your health insurance, because you're, you're, well, you should have health insurance no matter what, but like you're paying for a lot of the mistakes you've made before. Right? So I would say more like copay and deductibles. <laughs> they can be very high, especially now. <laughs> right? So not only that, but I think when it comes to the spiritual aspect of it, you pay a huge price. You might be paying with the price of y- you not having a relationship with the Lord because you've been living in sin. So he says, he goes on to say in Judges 6-7, When they cry out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I bought you, brought you up out of the slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove you out, um, your, I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am your Lord. You must not worship other gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which, is, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizir. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So let me... Let me kind of explain what's happening here. So um, you thresh wheat, you know, uh, in like the, they had a, so when they would do the harvest, they would get the wheat and then they would thresh it on the, on the floor specifically designed for that. But here you have Gideon who is pretty much a nobody, right? He is trying, so how, how does this say right here? The angel of the Lord came, the, myth, uh, the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the clan of Abizir, Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress. So the problem here is that normally you would thresh wheat where you need to be doing it. You shouldn't be doing this in the winepress. The winepress was a place where the wine was made. But this was kind of like a hole in the ground, some people say, that you could hide yourself in and you'd stump on the, on the what's it called, on the... Um, grapes and he was trying to hide himself because he had some food he had grain or he had uh, wheat rather and he was trying to like harvest it without anyone seeing it 
So he's trying to make lunch is what I'm trying to say. And he's trying to hide it so people would not see it because the Midianites would just come and take all his lunch. So as he's doing this, he's kind of like watching around. And then the angel of the Lord, which a lot of people say this is a representation of what Jesus, of who Jesus is. And comes and says, you know, this amazing line, uh, different translations say different things, but it says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Uh, different translations say, uh, the, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Excuse me? What do you mean? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a hero. I'm just trying to make some lunch. Like, what are you talking about? But you see, the amazing thing about God is God calls us out of our brokenness and out of, out of the families that we're born in. Maybe they were dysfunctional or well, whatever problems we had, right? He doesn't come and he, he points out your problem. He comes and calls out of you who you were meant to be. This is what I'm trying to say is, is he doesn't see just your circumstances. He comes and he calls out of you, right, who he designed you to be. He says, Gideon, I know it might not look like it right now, but I called you to be a great man of God. I called you to be a man of valor. I called you to be a mighty hero. And I love how Gideon replies. He says, Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this thing happened to us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up from the Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midianites. Do you see that the depression here in this, in this tone of voice? Say, okay, sure, God, you're with us, okay? Like, where are you? Because if you haven't noticed yet, we're kind of hiding. And we're kind of starving. And I heard all the good stories about our ancestors and our, our grandparents, how you delivered them. But where are you now? That is something that I ask myself a lot too. When I came here and I, I heard so many stories of my grandparents and how they survived, the, the communist sort of, you know, establishment and how they thrived as a church. And when I came here, the first, I would say, probably five or six years, there was a lot of drug addiction between my friends. And I was like, Lord, I heard all the great stories, but have you noticed lately? Where are you exactly? Right? This is, this is what's crazy. God, where are you? And if you came this morning and maybe you have a kid who has been, you know, um, rebelling lately and you've tried everything, like, God, wh where are you in this? Maybe you've, you've had an addiction for a very long time. You constantly find yourself doing the same thing over and over and over. And you're like, God, where, where are you in this? It, it's, it's a posture of defeat, right? Like where Gideon's like, okay, if you're with us, I don't really see it, God. Where's your mighty plan, God? I, I want to know exactly what do you have in mind? Because right now, it looks very depressing around here. You wonder, at this point, what would God reply? Right? But in verse 14, he says this, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. That's kind of odd. 
You know, when he asks God, God, where are you? God turns around and says, Gideon, <laughs> you're kind of my plan. Gideon, uh, my plan is you. When we walk around and say things like, where is God in our generation? And God's like, you're my plan. You're my plan to your school. You're my plan to your coworker. You're my plan to City Hill Church Bellevue. You're my plan to your small group. You are my plan. And he says, go in the strength that you have. You know what God is saying here? Uh, I know you don't think you're a warrior. I know that you feel extremely overwhelmed. Kind of like me trying to control 13 sheep that have, they decided to make my life miserable. Right? And God's saying, hey, I'm calling you to speak. And you're like, I stutter. I, I constantly, like, I can't deliver anything. Much less a whole sermon. I'm calling you to lead a small group. I need to get my life in order first. How am I supposed to lead a small group? I'm calling you to the nations. I have a hard time talking to my neighbor because he's making a lot of noise right now. But like, other than that, like, right? Like you have this, how, how what do you mean? And God's saying, go in the strength that you have because here's what we would like. Slavic, I'd like you to open up church. Yeah, Lord, I, I'm extremely unqualified. Everyone knows that by now, right? Like, <laughs> and you'd, you'd think that God will say, yeah, you know what? We're going to get you a couple million dollars fund. We're going to get you about 300 different leaders. They all can speak. We'll get you about 50 different, like, small group leaders. That's not what God says. No, it's like, oh, no, go start a small group. And you show up, and it's you and your sister. <laughs> and she has a phone call. And it's depressing because <laughs> you're by yourself, right? And, and, and you know, you're, you're like, Let, let's start, guys. We're going we're gonna to do a worship team. And it's going to be great. People are going to worship. And then everyone sounds off key. And the sound is really bad that morning. It's either too, too loud or too, too quiet. And it's just embarrassing. And you're like, can we get some professionals around here? Yeah, we don't have the money for that. So most likely, if you notice that, most likely God is calling you to that ministry. Just shameless plug in there. Right? Like, right? like you start to notice things and you're like, I love this like, satire article that was posted on Babylon B that said, like, the church that never volunteers for anything in church wonders why there's no more programs in church. Maybe because you don't volunteer? Right? Because you think, okay, somebody else has to do it. And that's what God says to Gideon. You are my plan. Go in the strength that you have. And as you are giving out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill that strength. It, it, it amazes me. <laughs> I, I have to, I probably shouldn't tell you this, <laughs> but this morning uh, we were supposed to have a different speaker and it just turned out that he couldn't come. And like I had a day and a half to prepare a message and I was just like, Lord, this is, this is interesting because I'm also speaking rewritten. So I called a whole bunch of my buddies and I'm like, hey, I know it's a lot late notice, but could you speak rewritten? And everyone's like, I already have plans. I'm going out and out of town and this and that. And it's like, Lord, I'm very unqualified to do this today. 
you feel ex I'd like to think that when I come up here, I come here in confidence. But that's not what happens. You wonder, oh, oh did I sound check and, and uh, did I go to the bathroom? And, uh, you know, did I have my notes? And what am I going to say next? And, and I hope I don't bomb. And Lord, you better speak because I don't have much of a message. And in your weakness, God chose to work through all of this. And, and this is what I love about the, our first passage. It says that God shows, remember dear brothers and sisters, a few of you were uh, wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world Things counted as nothing at all, and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God's saying, hey, you're going to go on the strength you have because you don't have much, and I have to move. The battle is mine, is what God is saying. I, I am the one that is sending you. I'm the one who's going before you. It's not your strength. It's not your budget. It's not your leaders. I am the one who's going before you. And unless you get those two mixed up and you think you, you can rely on your charisma and your speech abilities and, 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 and your uh, budget and your, your leadership and all these things, quite frankly, the, God doesn't care about any, uh, any of that. He chose fishermen who, you know, and people who started like Moses. People with problems. And Gideon is no better. He's just a guy trying to hide his... I, I, <sighs> it was weird because listening to so many sermons on this topic and hearing preachers say, you know... God is looking for a man who chooses to go for him. I'm like, yeah, this is not Gideon. <laughs> at least not at the beginning. He was not ready for this. But God didn't say, hey, oh, you're not prepared. It's okay, I'll get a hold of your older brother. Oh, I'm going to get, oh, Mighty Warrior lives down the street. I think I got the wrong address. No, 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 no. That's not what God is saying here. God says, no, I, I chose you. So when we get to this passage, I, I love how he says, um, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites if you, uh, as you are fighting against one man. And then he goes on, and again, this is a lot of, you can go and read it at home because it's a, it's a big story. But the first thing that I noticed that God does with Gideon in verse 25 he says, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bowl from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down Asherah pole standing besides it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully, sacrifice the bowl as a burnt offering on the altar using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded, but he did at the night, at night because he was afraid of the members of his father's household and the people of the town. I know that's a lot of language in the Old Testament. Of all. What I want to tell you is God tells him that, hey, you know your, your daddy, your father, has been worshiping wrong gods. So the first thing I want you to do before you go and win this battle for us you know, for me, before you go and do this, go and start with your family. Go and start with your, with your daddy, with your father, who is worshiping that, a God that is an idol. 
tear down the altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole and then use that for firewood to bring me a, a, a uh, sacrifice. You see, the first thing that God is going to do when he calls you up is to say, you need to get rid of your idols in your household. First start with you and your household and then work your way out. He says that he was afraid and he did this at night. Oh boy, this didn't go very well, obviously, as you might have expected. Early next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar to Baal had been broken down and the and that of the Asherah pole, besides it, he, uh, had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? After asking around and making careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the man of the town demanded of jo uh, Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob and confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. So listen, if you choose to, you know, be in bed with the enemy, you're going to be fine for a while. He won't touch you. The moment you decide that you're going to fall after Jesus. It was weird how it used to be nobody even knew his name. Nobody cared about him. But the moment he cut down the Asherah pole and the altar built to different gods, who, which are not gods at all, they're idols, the whole town was up in arms. Kind of like, you know, the modern day culture. The moment that you say something that's politically incorrect, that, that is godly, they didn't even know your name, but the moment you say something like that, the moment you're doxxed, the moment you're called out, the moment you're just shamed, this is, this is not new, guys. This has been going on for a while. But if we got to make a difference, we need to cut those things down. We need to tear down the altars that we've been worshiping and start worshiping the Lord. And I love how even though, you know, you, you feel like, okay, he's dead. He, 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 he's dying today. But I love how God just turns it around. And his father, who used to worship these things, comes to his defense and says, wait a second. If this God that we've been worshiping this is real, let him defend himself. Why do we have to defend uh, him uh, for, uh, why, why should we defend him? So what I want to tell you is God's going to send you your strength, but then he's going to ask you to tear down some of the things that you've been worshiping. Some of the things that you thought, they're just not that big of a deal. God's saying that it, they, they are a big deal. And you're going to have, if you're going to come under the anointing that he's giving you, you're going to have to get your life in order. You're going to have to come and confess and repent. You're gonna, if you're going to deliver, you have to be delivered first. Right? If you're going to be working for the Lord, make sure you know Him. Make sure you're walking with Him. But here's the thing. I wish to tell you that Gideon was just so confident, but he was not. He had doubts. 
He goes on to say, verse 36, And Gideon said to God, If you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me. In this way, I'll put a f- wool, uh, 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 wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as promised. So he puts these, uh, this fleece, that's all we get kind of this idea that put a fleece before the Lord, you know. Uh, just You've done it before. You're like, Lord, I need the answer. I'm just going to open the Bible and I'm just going to, you know, um, <laughs> I would strongly recommend against it. Somebody did that and they're like, Lord, I just need a word. And they open the Bible and says, and Judah, Judas went and hung himself. He's like, no, that, that, that can't be it. <laughs> so he opens another one and he says, you should go and do likewise. <laughs> so you can have some disastrous consequences when you're trying to play Russian roulette with the Bible, okay? You should really ask the Lord for an answer, right? And then let the Lord speak to you and make sure it's confirmed through your godly authorities, right? And make sure it's biblical. You don't just kind of run and like try to use the Bible as a Ouija board. That's not how it was meant to be, right? Like, Make sure you prayerfully consider everything that God is. And if you put a fleece before the Lord, that's fine. Just make sure that you don't, you don't try to do this by... Anyway, I don't want to go on a, tend, tend, uh, a tendency there. But he does this. He puts it before the Lord. He does it where one night the fleece has to be with water. One night the, the ground has to have water. And the dew's on the ground, but the fleece is, is dry, and both of them turn out to be positive, and it turns out that he is he's ready to do this. So he's like, okay, God, I am so ready. You've had those moments before you come to the altar, and God speaks to you, you're like, God, I am so ready to go, like, take the world right now. I'm going preaching the countries. I'm going, I'm, nobody has yet, the world has yet to see what God can do. And you, you have all these quote, quotes, and then automatically your Facebook just has this, like, revival thing on, on, the, on the wall, like, old quotes and videos, and you're like, oh, I'm doing this for the Lord. This is great. And you're trying to get an army, like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up a church, and this and that and that. And God looks at this, and, and Gideon gets about 32,000 people to go fight 135,000, which is like four to one. Okay, it's definitely a losing rate, but he's thinking, okay, well, but we have God. And God's like, yeah, no, this is too much. If you go with 32,000 people and you're fighting for me, they might think that they're fighting in their strength and they got the victory by their strength. So tell them if they're scared to raise their hand and go home. And Gideon's like, yeah, but my my men are brave. Uh, Sure, let's do this. Raise your hand if you're just scared. 20,000 people, lift your hand. Because as you kind of know now, that was kind of like, literally, that's, that's, a, that's a lot to go against, 135,000. He's left with like literally about, I think, 10,000 people left. So it's actually 22,000 people that left. So he's left to, uh, with, with 10,000 people. And he's like, okay, Lord, I really need some extra grace on this one. Like, I really, like, I think, I don't know what you're doing, Lord, but, but this is, this is, this kind of sc- sounds scary. You want us to go 10,000 against 135,000? That's like a one person killing 13 people. That's, I mean, I have confidence in my, in my people, but like, that's a lot of people to kill. God's like, well, I still think there are too many. 
So take them by the river, and if you see them, you know, if they're drinking, if they completely like, lay on their belly and they're drinking from, from the river, then that means that you should probably not take that person. But if they're kind of like leaning and bringing water to their, to their mouth, then, then you can take that person. It turns out that he's left to 300 people out of 32,000 people. You've had those moments before. We were so fired up to go change the world. And then somebody gets a phone call like, yeah, I'm moving. I, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Oh, you know what? My wife says no, so there's that. Oh, you know, um, I can't do it because I'm going to school. I can't do this because this. So you have a lot of this stuff coming up. And you feel a bit defeated. And you feel like, God, how are you going to deliver Israel with 300 people? That sounds impossible. And God pulls another one. He says, yeah, hey, Gideon, and by the way, one more thing. Don't take any swords. Like, don't take anything like that. Like, don't take any, any like, weapons. Like, what? God, what are you talking about? We are going against 135,000 people. Don't take swords. What is going on, God? God's like, well, you're just going to have to listen to me on this one. I want you to take a torch, every single one of you, and light it on fire, and then take a jar of clay and put it over. And then just take a trumpet. And if you don't feel confident, go in the Midian's camp right now, sneak in between enemy, line, enemy lines, and, and I'll confirm it to you. So he kind of does this thing where he goes and he hears this, this, this enemy that says, hey, I had this bad dream. And this other guy says, well, that has to be Gideon because I heard a lot of things that supposedly they, they have God coming with them and this is, this is trouble for us. So that's another confirmation for Gideon. He, he comes back to his man and says, okay, are you guys ready? Divides them in three different groups, about a hundred people each. And then they, they go and says, okay, follow exactly and do exactly what I do. And they surround the camp of Midian. And they break their jars and there's, you have all this fire around the camp, right? Like you have all this fire around the camp. And they start to like, trumpet and say one you know sword for Gideon and one for the Lord and the Midianites they get so confused and they start to attack each other because it's in the middle of the night they just woke up and it says that on that day God gave Gideon the victory and I wish to tell you that that the story ends up there but there's another part of the story that is not really talked about but I think we should talk about. You have this great victory and everyone just comes and they're just so filled with, with the Spirit of God and everyone's just, you know, kind of like dancing and enjoying. And they're like, Gideon, you delivered us. And everyone's just like, yeah, Gideon, Gideon, be our king, Gideon. Be in charge of us, rule us. You were so great, you delivered us. And this is where Gideon has like a sober mind and he has a sober moment, but then he kind of does something very weird. He's like, listen, 
Israel can have no king. God is the king. You know, after you're going to do what God has called you to do, and you're going to experience some success, there comes a moment that you're going to have to sort of reckon with that success. And in the beginning, you preach a great sermon, and people come up and you're like, that was an amazing sermon. And you're like, it was, the, it was God. It was, it was totally Him. It, it, him be all the glory. I'm just a vessel that he filled. So you have all these like very like lofty sayings like, oh, it was all God. It was not me, right? And that's what Gideon kind of has that moment. It's like, yeah, it was all God that delivered. God is the king, which I'm like, Gideon, that's impressive. That's awesome. It's amazing, Gideon, that you're getting out of, out of the picture and allowing God to be in the picture. Because it was God who made you great. It was God who won the victory. It's not so much that you're a great man. You're a man in the hands of a great God. It was God who did the work. What are the odds here, Gideon? 300 against 135, I think that's 450 to 1 ratio. You think you've delivered Israel? Obviously it wasn't you. It was the Lord that delivered Israel. So you, he has a sober moment, and I'm like, this is, this is awesome. I like this guy. But then he does this. Pick it up, and Judges 8, 22 says, The Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord is your ruler, uh, is, will rule over you. However, I do have one request. It's kind of small, tiny, just one request. That each one of you will give me an earring from the plunder you have collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies being the Ishmaelites, uh, they all wore gold rings, right? Gladly, they replied. They spread out a cloak and each of them threw in gold earrings he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and the pennants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, and the chains around their necks of their camel. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah. I know it's kind of, again, old language. Gideon has this posture like, it was the Lord who delivered you. It was God. But hey, I, I have a small request, you know. Like, if, if I have been so good to you, would you bring, like, you know the plunder you got? Would you bring, and uh, would you put it all here? They do that, and he says he made an ephod. Now, an ephod is a, a clothing thing that would have a lot of gold on it. and It would have like, sometimes like bricks, small bricks of gold on it. Right? And listen to this. It says, Gideon made a sacred ephod out of the gold in Ophrah, in his hometown. But soon after, all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Like you had such an amazing victory. You're so successful, Gideon. 
and you did this? You know, I'm going to build an amazing church for the Lord. But, you know, I want to have my name just like on, when people come in, they know that I'm the founder of, of the church. You know, just a little small thing. So people walk in like, oh, wow. That's the pastor that built the church. Okay. All right. I'm going to build a school for the Lord, of course. It's the Lord doing. It's the Lord who gives the money. It's the Lord that do all that. But I'm going to have my small brick that's going to say, hey, founded by so-and-so. So people can come and marvel like, oh, what a great guy. Gave up everything, built a school. What, isn't this amazing? Isn't this awesome? Do you see where I'm getting at? After your success, you start to slowly inch in front of Jesus. Hey, you know, it's just a small request here. But when you mention me, can you mention me by, 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 by name? Not just by name, like full name, but also by, with the title. Like, I want to be, because, you know, I'm a bishop and a pastor and a this and a this and a this. Can you mention all those things? And can you, when you announce me, can you name all my credentials? Like, what I graduated from, where, like, how many doctor's degrees I have? It's just a small thing. It's not that big of a deal. So people can probably, oh, this guy's educated. This guy knows what he's talking about. I think the problem with looking at these stories in the Bible is often we look at Gideon and say, oh, be like Gideon. He's a hero. I've been taught that my whole life. Be like David. He's a hero. Gideon is not about you. David is not about you. They're just a foreshadow of who Jesus will be. And they, and Jesus, did what they could not do. Gideon was the imperfect deliverer. The point to the one who will come one day and fully deliver us. The one who's going to come and break the cycles. It's not going to deliver us for a moment. And that is the person who deserves our worship. That is the person why we're here this morning. You didn't come here to listen to me. You didn't come here to see other people. You didn't come here to think that I'm funny or witted or any of those things. You came here to hear from Him. And we need to get out of the way. He's the ultimate deliverer. Jesus is the deliverer who delivered what none of the other people before couldn't, couldn't do. He's the more perfect David and the more perfect Esther and the more perfect Gideon. He's the perfect of all those people that couldn't be perfect. Because the ephod, the Gideon made, says that it became a snare, it became a trap for him and his family. The things that we think we deserve end up costing us our legacy. Because we don't know when to get off the stage. When your mic is off, you should probably get off the stage. I heard the story of this guy who was supposed to talk about a painting in the, in the uh, museum. And he would say, oh, this painting was, and constantly talk so highly of this painting. But he started getting bored with his job. And he would get in front of the painting. And people would start to do this and to see the painting. You know why? Because he was in the way. 
And when you experience some success in ministry or you experience some success in business, when I, I love this book that I read in, in college, I literally was forced to read it, but I was glad I read it, called Why Great Men Fall. And the one overarching thing that sort of talked in this book is that when people achieve a status or achieve an influence level or a, a, a career sort of, they, they got there, they feel like this title, they're like, I deserve this. You know, I got here by my own strength. And that is the beginning of the downfall. Because pride goes before the fall. And sometimes manifests so innocently. So, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just like, oh, the Lord delivered everything. But it's just, it's just one thing that I want to do. Just people to remember. Every single time they see that he thought, like, they'll be like, oh, Gideon, this is so great. Like, he was, he was like you know, nobody, but then God raised him. And he was so great, Gideon. Like, it was awesome. And then it turned into a way for the people to go back into bondage. To go and to prostitute themselves with an idol again. Now, if you were to ask Gideon, like, no, I, I destroy idols. I'm an idol destroyer. I'm not, I'm not like my fathers and all the people who came before me. I'm different. Gideon, that is something that nobody preached to me. And I was just like, why? Why'd you do this, Gideon? So I'm going to call you to prayer and I say this, that I don't know how you came in this morning. But understand that Jesus is a more perfect deliverer than anyone that came before him. He's the ultimate de deliverer. So whatever you came here with, he can deliver you. And after he will deliver you, he will ask you to put those idols to death. He, then he's going to give you a calling. And I hope that we are a church of young men and young women who rise up, and older uh, you know, gentlemen, older women who rise up that don't take credit for something that God has done. That don't step in front of who God is. That really understand the only reason that my life really matter is not because I'm great, but because I'm in the hands of a great God. And He is the one who changed history. He's the one who achieved the victory that nobody could have achieved. He's the one who set us free. He's the one who delivered us. So that said, if you have not made Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm ask you to make that commitment today. Thank you for listening to Eternal Stance. My hope is that these messages will help you to live in light of eternity. If this podcast is a blessing to you, would you share with other people? Thank you in advance, and until next time, God bless you.